Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney with the broadest and deepest experience in all forms of aircraft propulsion. PrattWhitney.com TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program. TAConnections.com Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. And Seabury Capital Group, global reach, global scale. SeaburyCapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at AirlinesConfidential.com. Welcome to Show 99 of Airlines Confidential. I'm Chris Chimes, and I'm joined by Ben Baldanza, and we are happy to have you join us, and we're very happy as we approach our 100th podcast. Hi, Chris, and welcome to all of our listeners. I'm very excited to be approaching 100 shows. We seem to never run out of things to talk about, and I guess that's a feature of the airline business. So that's your cue to get us going on the news, Chris. Thanks, Ben. Here goes. It seems like the big airline story of the week was Delta announcing a premium surcharge for health insurance coverage for employees who declined to be vaccinated for COVID. While they were the first airline to step out with this policy, they weren't the first employer to do this, but Ben, it sure got a lot of coverage. It sure did it sure did get a lot of coverage, but many health plans charge higher premiums if you're a smoker, for example sort of something that at least initially is a choice. I, mean, I realize you eventually get addicted and maybe it's harder to think of it as a choice. But certainly getting a vaccine or not now is a choice for most people. I'm sure there are some doctors who tell their patients you should not because of these health reasons and things. But for most people, it's a choice. So given that, it doesn't surprise me that Delta took this step. You know, Ed Bastian had come out earlier and said that they weren't going to mandate vaccines for people. And he used an interesting fact for that. He said 75% of their people were already vaccinated and he estimated 5 to 10% would have a legitimate exemption not to. So it left, you know, a thin slice, only about 15% of their employees that would really have been affected by a mandate. So I guess the way he decided to treat that group is, well, if a stick doesn't work with that, maybe a carrot, you can save money if you don't, right? right. I guess charging a premium could, could be thought of as carrot or stick. But incentives clearly work with customers, with employees, with us as individuals. So he's creating a real strong incentive to say, look, if you decide you don't want to get this vaccine and you can get it, then that's okay, but we're going to pay for that through our health insurance and we're going to make you pay that difference. So it doesn't surprise me. It's consistent with the language they were already talking about, only affecting a small number of their people. And like you said, other companies outside the airline business are doing it. I actually think this is a very practical way to deal with unvaccinated employees. Rather than say you cannot work here, which some companies, you know, United Airlines, for example, are doing, you say, look, you can work here, but recognize our health premiums, our health costs are going to go up because it's more likely you will miss work, more likely you will get sick, more likely you may infect others who may get sick. So therefore, we're going to push that cost on you and our health premiums. Seems like to me like a very rational, reasonable thing, still allows individuals to make a choice, but there's a consequence to every choice we make. 
Yeah, I agree with that, Ben. It seems like the headline was more the level of the surcharge. I mean, some companies have been rolling this idea out and, you know, a little more of a nominal $20, $30 a paycheck. But um, the Delta premium is going to be significant. But they also were talking to their employees and, and laying out how much a hospitalization from COVID costs. So I think they're trying to bring people along so that, so that everyone understands that this is impacting the company's financial resources on top of their human resources. So we'll have to kind of watch this space and see what other airlines do and what other major employers do as well. You know, bringing this back to the airlines, Chris, if you go back to 2010, when Spirit first introduced its carry-on bag charge, one of the features of that back at 2010 that really rankled people was if you bring a bag to the gate that needed to be checked or paid for as a carry-on, but wasn't paid yet, it would be $100 to carry it on the plane. And I remember being asked by a number of media members, why would you make that fee $100? And I said, if it wasn't 100 it should be 1000 because what we really don't want is anybody to bring a bag that hasn't been paid for that has to be carried on the plane. And what we really want to do is incent the behavior to take care of it at the ticket counter or, you know, and do it earlier. We don't want to charge anyone $100, but it's really more of a fine than a fee. And I thought of that when I saw Delta's $200 charge. I thought it was, wow, that's a lot. You know, that's $2,400 a year. Every month, $200 is a lot of money for a lot of people. But it made me think, they're thinking of this as much as a fine as a fee. They're saying, we're going to fine you for making what we think is a poor decision. I'm sure they're never going to use those words, but to me, that's what $200 says. So are we going to hear from a Delta employee for a final wine question later about the Delta insurance premium? That's that's a valid point, Pim. There's nothing cared about this. This is a stick, but I think employers are going to have to step up as they manage costs. This this pandemic's not going to go away. Yep. And just to make the record clear, Spirit has since reduced that gate check fee. It's now $65, just to be fair. (laughs) So Ben, let's go to Europe next. And something sad for airline industry lovers and geeks alike, uh, it looks like Alitalia has sung its last aria. After multiple restructurings and brushes with financial collapse, the end of this storied airline is near. The airline has stopped selling tickets beyond October 15th and when it will be replaced by a new but much smaller national carrier to be known as ITA. I know this is a survival of the fittest industry, but this feels like one of those moments like when Pan Am or TWA was shutting down. You know, this is sad in some ways, but it's also amazing that it has taken this long for a company like Alitalia. You know, in Pan Am and TWA's case, they were operating in a big domestic market, the the U.S. They didn't adapt quickly enough, neither airline after deregulation to increase their scope domestically. They still relied heavily on long haul international routes. Neither airline built up all, you know, particularly large domestic network and and they had cost issues and other issues. But you can sort of look back at Pan Am and TWA and say, had they done these things, they might have survived. I'm not sure you can say that about Alitalia. I mean, Lufthansa with its hub in Munich has been sucking traffic out of Italy for a long time. Right. Certainly all long haul traffic. Munich is close to Italy, obviously. 
and Lufthansa flies lots of flights in there. Ryanair and Wizz Air both fly really low-cost flights into Italy to lots of places. So Alitalia is in this market that, you know, Italy's a wonderful country to travel in. And, you know, it's great food, great people, fantastic sites and things like that. But it's never been a particularly great air market. And it hasn't been a particularly high yield air market. And it's been picked apart by low cost airlines on one side, Lufthansa on the other side. So it's amazing to me that Alitalia has lasted as long as it has in some ways. Although it is sad that an airline with that name sort of is going away. You know, other airlines like Swiss and Austrian, the names are still there, but they've largely gone away in the sense that they're all run by Lufthansa now, right? But they at least still have planes with those names on them, and they operate that way. But uh, it's a sad moment for sure, but not something that's completely surprising. And sticking it out to 2021 is a surprise. I think if you had asked a number of people in 2010 you know, will Alitalia be around in 2021? I bet many of them would have said, oh, no, it'll be gone long before then. Yeah, well, certainly the the government assistance and support multiple times has kept the airline alive longer than perhaps it should have been. And again, it was kind of the glamour of the name and Italian fashion and kind of all things Italy that we know about. So, you know, it had probably a cachet that kind of went above its reputation clearly as an airline, but it's still sad to see. Yeah, I, I, th- I think that's exactly right. Well, you know, Clear, Chris, makes travel safer and easier. Become a member of Clear and you'll enjoy frictionless journeys when you use Clear's home to gate feature, which lets you know exactly the best time to leave for the airport. Plus, Clear Signature Experience helps you move seamlessly through airport security. Where will you go? Get back out there with Clear. And you can't go anywhere without an aircraft engine. And Pratt & Whitney is the world's leader in the design, manufacture, and service of aircraft and helicopter engines. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is driving the next generation of more sustainable travel. This revolutionary geared turbofan engine is allowing airlines and airports to open new routes and to fly more people farther and with less fuel and with much lower noise. Learn more at pwgtf.com. So Ben, back in the U.S., uh, along with actively recruiting for ramp workers on Facebook and other digital channels, Southwest is trying to get in front of their operational issues by reducing its schedule, initially with 27 daily flights from September 7th through October 6th, and then another 162 daily flights from October 7th to November 5th. Does 27 fewer flights out of 3,300 even make a difference? It uh, it uh, doesn't make much of a difference to me at all, and I bet it won't much for Southwest either. Um, my guess is that most of these are going to be reductions in frequency rather than cancellations in city pairs. Southwest runs high frequency in a lot of their city pairs. So it's probably relatively easy for them to trim a frequency here and there to make the schedule a little bit looser or a little bit lazier, as sometimes as schedulers call it. A plane which doesn't fly as many hours as it could in a day is sometimes called a lazy schedule, which is very maintenance-friendly and operationally friendly because it gives more time to sort of catch up and have redundancy. And my guess is that's what they did. They didn't want to have an operational mess up. They knew travel was reducing 
both seasonally, because it always does in September and October, and business travel isn't coming back quite as quickly because of because of the Delta variant and more shutdowns and things. So they're saying we probably don't need these frequencies anyway. So let's help the operation with 27 fewer flights. It's probably, I'm sure it doesn't mean a big layoff or anything like that. It's going to be kind of rounding error. I agree with you. Southwest does so many things right, and they are outstanding in in managing expectations. We've talked about this previously. So I guess that's why I don't understand why they just didn't say, you know, with summer travel season over, we're reducing a couple handfuls of flights and not link it to making the operation better because I don't think it's going to really make much of a difference in the short term. Maybe by the time you get to the fall and the 162 fewer flights, that'll relieve some pressure. But to suggest to your customers and your employees that things are going to get better because of these 27 flights, I'm not sure what the point of that was. And then finally, back to Europe again, as we kind of keep boomeranging back and forth. Ben, what's your take on reports breaking over the weekend that British Airways slash IAG is going to launch a low-cost short-haul airline of its own to compete with EasyJet and Ryanair? Good luck. That's my uh, (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's just hard for a legacy airline thinkers to think like a real low-cost airline. Now, I get that IAG has lower-cost airlines within their group. Certainly, Aer Lingus is lower cost than British Airways, right, and others. But Ryanair has low cost throughout their DNA. You know, they will not fly to a city if the airport costs are too high. Or they will pull out of a city if an airport puts some charge that they think is you know, ridiculous that requires them to raise their ticket prices beyond a certain amount. It's hard for me to think that IAG would be that that focused on cost. Now, will they be able to pay their people less? Yes, but that also creates long-term, you know, friction within an organization when you have one group being paid less than another because they fly in a different division. U.S. Airlines saw that when they had United and TED or Continental and Cal Light or things like that. So they can certainly make some changes. Are they going to be able to negotiate with all their distribution to say, I want you to sell British Airways and Aer Lingus, but I don't want you to sell this new low-cost airline because I'm going to go direct to my customer? Or are they going to you know, not want to upset those distribution deals with large distributors and say, well, I guess you can sell my low cost subsidiary too, but maybe I won't pay you quite as much for that. But again, all those things are compromises. And so I just think it's very, very hard if you're not starting it truly from scratch and disassociated from everything else that you could you know, ever compete with EasyJet or Ryanair. Another thing about EasyJet and Ryanair is they're really good airplane buyers and they tend to buy airplanes when nobody else is buying them. I mean, Ryanair made a big order for the 737 MAX almost right after it was recertified. And I imagine they got probably the best price that anyone will ever see on a 737 MAX. And IAG gets good prices because they're a huge airline and they buy lots of airplanes. But are they going to choose not to buy an airplane when they need it, like Ryan does, and buy big when nobody else is buying? I just, I just don't see 
how they're going to be successful against airlines that go to bed every night thinking, how do I make the fare lower tomorrow? That's just not what IAG is about. So they can produce a lower cost airline than they have today. But are they going to beat EasyJet and Ryanair? I just don't see it happening, Chris. I have nothing to add. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, we've, we've seen this movie before. You know, maybe this one has a different ending. But I'm as skeptical as you are. Um, not that we don't want to see them succeed. I certainly think we do. But it's been tried multiple times with not a lot of success. Well, along with competing with EasyJet and Ryanair, BA is likely also watching how JetBlue's recent launch of service is going to impact its lucrative transatlantic market. Our conversation with Chris Sloan about the JetBlue inaugural flight is coming up next. But first, a reminder that TA Connection partners with more than 140 aviation and cruise line companies and hundreds of thousands of hotels worldwide. They monitor and track room utilization so that you get the most out of the rooms you buy and you only pay for what was consumed, which means enhanced operations and a true savings to your organization. Learn more at taconnections.com. TA Connections is a fleet core company and the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. Once again, we have with us Chris Sloan, our roving correspondent. And Chris is just back from London, having taken JetBlue's inaugural flight from JFK to London. Chris, tell us about the flight. You know, the flight was really fantastic. I mean, it was just such a unique time to launch a new service like this and one that is so pivotal to the airline. Uh, in the middle of COVID and uh, one that we're clearly not out of the woods yet. But, uh, you know, it was a really big celebration. You could tell that this was really a big deal for JetBlue to spread its wings over the North Atlantic. It was like its opening salvo because there's a lot more to come. And so it was pretty significant. I mean, they threw a gate party that was pretty hysterical. They had changing of the guards. They had people up on stilts dressed. It looked like an Austin Powers movie. Um, <laughs> the, uh, some of the chimes were Big Ben, and it was just a, it was the, the launch ceremony was, uh, was kind of wacky, actually. You know, once we got on board, it was, uh, you know, it was pretty interesting in that it was, the slots aren't great, you know, the, the departures are late. So they really did their best to kind of hustle the service and kind of get people to sleep. And there wasn't like a lot of pomp and circumstance, but you know, when we walked on the plane, uh, you know, it looked like a uh, we were reminded of our UK US special relationship because there were uh, British and American flags being waved in every seat back, and and it was really uh, that was really fun and cheeky. And then we uh, you know we embarked on the uh, on the new core service, which I think was really uh, unique and disruptive, and maybe even more interesting than the than the fabulous Mint 2.0. So, what do you think were the best two things about the onboard service, and two things you'd like to see improved? Well, I think the best thing about it was is that, you know, you don't you aren't used to economy. Uh, you know, you're often it's often an afterthought. And certainly before the pandemic, at the very end of this, there was like an arms race where even Delta was saying, oh, we're going to do pre-flight departure beverages and economy. But JetBlue really, you know, carries over its egalitarian, you know, everybody's getting a quality product and innovation, even in economy. So in, so what was really unique is you actually have a food partnership with Dig and you can order and build your meal from the seat back. And I was like, is this going to work? Is this going to really slow the service pattern down? Is the food going to be arrive warm? Is it going to be of any kind of quality? And, you know, by the way, it, it all was. It was really fun. It was really tasty. It was it worked. And they had a really unique service pattern where you had one cart 
beginning at the front of the cabin and one at the back, and they kind of merge together. And, uh, you know, they're trying to operate really fast. Now, that said, uh, you know, it took about two hours. And so two hours on a short uh, flight, transatlantic doesn't, uh, you know, flight that uh, this flight was about six hours and 20 minutes, you know, two hours is significant. So they need to obviously be able to finesse that and speed that up. And we were not even uh, flying with a full load uh, because people want to sleep. And so I found it really tasty, innovative. I mean, they served ice cream. They had free drinks. They were really upbeat. But, uh, you know, they, they acknowledge they have to, you know, be able to speed that service up. And um, and they've got 50 flight attendants uh, trained, especially trained for that service initially. And they said they've trained for about five to six days. So they admit there um, there's room for improvement there. But otherwise, um, that was number one. And then number two, the IFE in-flight entertainment systems that JetBlue has, you know, uh, the Tully system is just the amount of content. I mean, uh, just it's just really, really a robust system. Plus, you have the free Wi-Fi, which, by the way, cuts out a lot, uh, even with limited usage on both directions. But um, all in all, the core experience uh, was really, really excellent going over. It just needs to be accelerated. Chris, you're known for the Sloan drone on YouTube. Were you able to bring a drone with you to use at the gate at either end? And will that video be available for uh, people to watch? (laughs) Well, I wish I would have thought that. Um, (laughs) I did bring my drone, but I uh, I flew it over when I went to visit my family over in London. But I did shoot video of the flight, not with the drone, because it's kind of hard to fly drones in airports and planes. But if you go to keyaero.com, which is Airliner World Magazine, you'll see video on board the inaugural event and the flight. So Chris, on the business side of this, where does JetBlue go with this opportunity? Well, I think it's really fascinating. I mean, they've opened up a big foray here. They announced the service two and a half years ago. And, you know, only because of COVID did they wind wind up getting, for now, temporary slots at Heathrow, which is a big win. You know, and then at Gatwick, uh, they're now they, they have the exclusive franchise, at least right now, with Norwegian and uh, BA and uh, Delta not, not operating a JFK to, to Gatwick. So they've got a unique proposition there. And over time, you know, the goal is with 26 long range aircraft due to be delivered, including three this year and then three next year, they open up Boston, uh, they open up JFK, they conceivably go different, you know, deeper frequencies, but the prospect. Of 20, with 26 aircraft in this market clearly says this isn't just about London. You know, they've said that London and is the largest markets out of JFK and Boston. They don't, did not serve at this point, and this was very much of a strategy surrounding those markets. But you can see that the with the range of these aircraft and the orders that they can extend into Rome and Amsterdam and Paris and conceivably out of other gateways in North America like uh, Orlando or Fort Lauderdale, other focus cities, and even down to deep Latin America. So I think the opportunity in the long term um, is really fascinating that they d- disrupt this, you know, the transatlantic where others have failed uh, because they have this narrow body A321LR equipment, which I think really distinguishes their chances of success from many others operating wide bodies who have failed. Um, that said, you know, these slots are temporary at Heathrow. Uh, they, they believe they have a path for them to be long term. Right now, I think they're, they've got temporary slots through the winter or part of the winter, they say. But, uh, and they, they had, uh, what, 270 for the summer. But, you know, retaining those Heathrow slots will be, uh, you know, that's, that's obviously something that's really, really, uh, you know, important. But um, they still are, uh, you know, even though they're disrupting fares and I'd say disrupting service, you know, with economy fares beginning at $600 and the, business fares at $2,000. They, they are disrupting on that level and they're disrupting in service, but 
quality, the service quality, but don't forget, you know, they only have in terms of seats, 5% of seats, you know, in Heathrow. And they're competing against two, you know, enormous JVs, you know, BA and American alone are 60% of that market and Delta and Virgin are 35%. I'm not even including Newark. And clearly, unlike when they disrupted the transcon market with Mint, they're not nearly as well known a proposition over on the uh, UK side as they are a beloved brand across America. So it's going to be, I think, a much more challenging uphill battle in that respect of of disruption. But uh, clearly, if you look at the fares, uh, the legacy compare competitors have already matched. And in some cases, I, it looks like the revenue management uh, department is taking over. And uh, because the, even uh, some of those JetBlue walk-up business fares I've, I've quoted are at $2,500 each way. So, um, you know, those introductory fares are not just automatically available. Um, I will say one thing I did find interesting is that because they, you know, need to use it or lose these slots, they did launch in a pandemic. And going over there, on that first flight, they only had about 40 revenue seats sold. And then returning, uh, there was only 40 seats on the airplane. In business, there was no seats, I believe, generating revenue. So obviously, coming back, uh, particularly from the UK side with the travel restrictions, you know, they're operating uh, planes that, where the loads aren't particularly high. So I think in the short term, um, with the travel restrictions and all that's going on with Delta um, variant, um, it's, a, it's a great long-term opportunity, but I think it's going to be really difficult in the short run. Well, Chris, let's go back to the onboard service for a minute. I know you're familiar with the premium products that those, you know, AABA and Virgin Delta offer. How do you think the Mint 2.0 product will stack up to someone who says, I just want a great place to sit and sleep? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question. I I think Mint, uh, you know, the premium product really, really matters in terms of that, that the, the idea of sleep to the business traveler who, you know, many have to hit the uh, ground running the next morning. Uh, you know, I don't know necessarily if that is necessarily the Mint proposition and if people necessarily need that product. But, you know, from my standpoint, the Mint product was extremely comfortable and it's a private suite. And that sounds like a gimmick, but it actually does make a difference. And they bring out, uh, you know, a duvet, they bring out pajamas, you know, it's really almost a misnomer. It really feels not like a business product. It's, it's pretty close to a, a first class product, really. And in terms of hard and soft products. So uh, if you wish, they are, you know, when I was talking to them, they said, we're going to employ things like an express meal service and a very curtailed service for those people who do want to immediately board and get to sleep, um, you know, which is a priority. But frankly, with the time of the flight departing at 10 o'clock and then arrival at 10 in the morning, I'm not sure that that uh, is their market right now uh, as far as business versus leisure travel. You mentioned, Chris, that you were uh, visiting family in the UK. Um, So this received a lot of fanfare in the US, but is anybody paying attention to JetBlue over on the other side of the pond? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I mean, there was actually, uh, there was more press on uh, on the UK side Certainly, the awareness of the airline is uh, is pretty nil. And in talking to friends and family, they were like, "Oh, it sounds like Virgin," you know. And I so I think they kind of get the analogy. But no, there there is not a uh, wasn't a great awareness of that. But um, what I did find interesting was that uh, there was a little bit of press and a little bit of buzz when the CEO of Heathrow, you know, got up and basically admitted and said, "Look, we are, you know, we're really happy to have you guys here. We know how difficult it is." Uh, for you to get in here and we make things bureaucratic and challenging and, you know, and it's a tight and tough airport. And, um, you know, when she made a kind of a comment about that, there was a lot of people buzzing about, you know, the challenges of 
you know, t- kind of began some discussion about the expansions of Heathrow and 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 how slot constrained and and what does that mean for the future of the airport? I I, I will say, interestingly enough, Heathrow is still down about eighty percent in terms of travelers. They re- they issued their July report the day we were there, you know, and that, and that and that's clearly a recovery. Uh, they said that's in recovery mode, but um, clearly, I think there's a long way to go. This kind of travel is top of mind over there when most people are just frustrated that they can't even, you know, I guess the the short answer to that is the first thing people are talking about is why are Americans allowed into the UK and it's not being reciprocated by the US government? Why are we not allowed to go the other way when in fact, we're more heavily vaccinated um, and we have a declining Delta variant case rate than the Americans do. So that's that's really what the narrative is over in the UK about with the US much more than it would be about the airline. Well, Chris, I think it's fantastic that you took this trip. I'm glad you got to see some family and maybe some friends while you were over there. What have you not told us about this trip that you want our listeners to know? I mean, I think it's really, really a fantastic uh, service. I mean, what I love about it is JetBlue is one of those airlines that when you're talking to people about flying it, it's it's one of the few that engenders, you know, airlines like Spirit and Frontier probably engender a certain reaction and emotion and even American. And it's generally not all that positive, but people genuinely have a real positive fan brandom, um, a fandom about JetBlue. And so when you mention to people that JetBlue is launching this, they immediately understand it's like, oh, tell me more. So that means I'm going to get uh, an improved level of service. You mean the fare is going to be better? I'm going to get TV. People are really excited about the brand proposition on all fronts in terms of quality. And so when you get on the flight, what's really nice about it is they have raised the bar. I mean, Mint 2.0, especially those studios, which are like where you can invite somebody over to have dinner. I mean, they are really a step above. And the small details of handwritten notes and special co-branded meals from Pasquale Jones and all the co-branding they do with the amenity kits with Tuft and Needle. And there's just so much touches and the, the crew is so personal and friendly and it doesn't feel like a, a formal stuffy service. It genuinely feels differentiated. And even the smallest things are wonderful about it. Like JetBlue still, you know, when you get on a network carrier, they're still like, well, I'm in first in business and then all that, there's the cattle class. JetBlue you, it feels egalitarian. We all feel like we're traveling at, a, at an elevated level, regardless of what cabin. And a small detail is there's not even a curtain between cabins. You know, there's not this kind of stiff arm, stay out of here, you know, and it's an intimate uh, and, it, and it's a really intimate flight, uh, you know, with the A321LR. The airspace cabin is really, really different in terms of lighting, in terms of the, 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 the size of the overhead bins. So they've managed to even thwart a lot of the criticism of flying a narrow body versus a wide body. Um, so it's, it is a special package, and I can hardly wait to see you know, where they take it. Um, the only downside, uh, something I didn't mention about an A321 or a narrow body aircraft like this is it doesn't make that much of a difference uh, you know, on, uh, on these flights, but you know, they do fly slower than a 747 or a wide body. It is the slowest plane across the Atlantic. And they also fly at lower altitudes. So they're gonna have maybe a little more challenges getting higher up into the jet stream or avoiding some of the weather for some of the bumps and things like that. So, you know, it's obviously a game changer from the airline standpoint. JetBlue's done a wonderful job with the real estate and the packaging of it. But, you know, there still are a few disadvantages to a, a narrow body. I mean, the, the, this thing is one of the most undense, roomy aircraft you can imagine. So um, I'd say, 
you know, kudos to JetBlue for this. And uh, it was uh, it was really a great experience. Well, Chris, always good to have you on. We look forward to your next report. Uh, until then, stay safe. Thank you. I, I appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Chris. We'll be back in a minute. The Airlines Confidential Podcast is now available on Apple, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Pandora, Spotify, TuneIn, and many more. Use your favorite podcasting app with just one click at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential, and thanks again to Chris Sloan for always livening things up with his take on what's happening. Now let's open up the show to our listeners as we take your questions and comments. Remember, you can leave a question on our voicemail at 202-964-0177, or you can email us at questions at airlinesconfidential.com, or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms, and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say, play the Airlines Confidential podcast. Ben, this first comment slash question is from Tom in Oakland, California, and you probably have a few things to say about this. I've got a comment on the summer spirit meltdown in your previous conversations. Spirit is almost a virtual airline. Almost nobody other than the flight crew and corporate actually work for the airline. Almost all the airport staff are contracted to a wide variety of grand handling companies where pay is low and job security is minimal as contracts get rebid every few years. When things get sticky with the operation, off-schedule ops, weather, crew, legality issues, and airport personnel become the targets of physical attacks and abuse, people will just quit and walk off. And why shouldn't they? You can't care more than the organization that hired you. Minimal pay, no future career track, no skin in the game. When things spiral down the drain in San Juan and elsewhere, Why should they stay on the job with no support? Well, thanks, Tom. This is an interesting question, but I think there's a few things wrong in the assumptions. First of all, Spirit is not almost a virtual airline. They own their airplanes, which is a big thing no virtual airline would do. They also have a full staff of mechanics who maintain their airplanes, which again, no virtual airline would do. They have pilots, flight attendants, a full management structure. They sell tickets, right? A virtual airline is a company that sells tickets and a different organization operates the flights. Spirit operates their flights. Yes, they outsource most of their airport operations. But those airport operations are outsourced usually to big companies who work for many, many airlines. And the people who work for those companies doing work for Spirit, I'm not sure most of them have no future career track or no skin in the game. They work for companies like Menzies, or a company like that, that are big companies. They have promotional opportunities for people. They can promote people within the company. They can move them to different locations if they didn't. They don't want to move. So just because the airline outsources its airport operations doesn't mean that those airport people are attached to a company that doesn't care about them or doesn't create opportunity for them. Now, certainly there are probably some stations that just have, you know, a little mom and pop organization that if in fact the people are being treated poorly, they might decide let's, let's leave. 
But again, those businesses, meaning the businesses that do airport handling for airlines, and even some big airlines outsource certain stations, maybe a station they only fly to once a day or something like that. So outsourcing at airports isn't completely uncommon, even among more traditional airlines. But the the companies that do that work are legitimate big companies who have their own HR policies, who are constantly recruiting people. And just like an airline who has people who may not want to come back to work after getting screamed at, they do too. And just as an American Airlines is probably um, spooled up their their pipeline for hiring reservations agents and ticket agents and things. So have the companies that do ground handling. So I think Spirit's meltdown wasn't because they outsourced their airport. And the reason I say that is they've outsourced their airport for the last 10 years and they've never had this kind of meltdown. So it would be odd that all of a sudden that became the issue. And so I think that... You bring up a really good point. It's probably harder for an airline like that because they're not as tied to the airline as they have. But again, they're not working for a company that doesn't care about them. So I think it's bigger than the issue you bring out. I think it's not because they're a virtual airline because they're not. And I think it's more of a an execution issue that they seem to have gotten hold of and seem to be dealing with now. That's my sense. Well, Ben, and we talked about this a few times as well with the broader labor shortage and, you know, even roles like uh, wheelchair escorts that are contract out positions at airports and the like. Most airlines now can't disassociate themselves from the labor shortage. And even if it's in a contract role, they have to be working a lot more closely with their providers to make sure that, that they're paying the right wages to attract good talent and keep good talent. And they can't just like fluff this off or slough this off like it's somebody else's problem. When it impacts the operation, it's the airline's problem. It's not necessarily always the contractor's problem. So if there's any airline management who's still thinking it's it's somebody else's problem to deal with, they're probably going to find themselves on the wrong end of a bunch of things going on in the future. You're 100% right, Chris. Um, The way that's often said is you can outsource process, but you cannot outsource responsibility. And I think that's exactly right. Well, Chris, this next question is from Sam in Alabama. Ben and Chris, in your recent conversation about the current pilot shortages, you guys and Mr. Glass mentioned causes related to the regional carriers, such as pay, time to move to the captain position, and flow agreements with large carriers. However, one factor that was not mentioned was the extreme cost-prohibitive nature of flight school in today's universities. Take Auburn University, for example. The cost of tuition, books, and room and board is roughly $15,000 per semester, It is possible to receive scholarships that cover the majority of this cost. However, the prestigious flight management program at Auburn University costs an additional $117,000 over four years to get all of the required certifications. None of this required FAA training is covered by available scholarships. That means those who are in the program are the only ones who can afford this price, which greatly limits the talent or labor pool. I thought this was an interesting factor shaping the labor market that was not addressed in the podcast. Thank you for the great show. I listen every week and enjoy every minute. 
Sam, this is an excellent point. Thanks for writing in. And uh, again, as we've touched upon this previously, some of this pilot shortage is directly related to the the drying up, if you will, of the military being a source of pilots and the industry trying to adapt to that new reality, but not going fast enough. And so when you have pilot candidates who come out of school with heavy debt, obviously you got to find the highest paying job you can. And if you're a regional carrier, you're going to hire someone and they're going to want to move to the major lines as soon as they can for higher income, in part to service their student loans and the like. So these are macro issues that have to be dealt with by the industry as they look at how they're going to staff the cockpit you know, for generations to come. And the labor pool is changing, as you point out. The, uh, how we recruit and how we identify candidates and how we train candidates is changing. And so all these things are going to require a whole new way of thinking and a whole new approach. You're right about that, Chris. And Sam, if you haven't heard this show, you might want to go to airlinesconfidential.com and scroll back to a show where we interviewed Paul Kinstadt from Republic Airways. He talked directly about this issue and talked about Republic's efforts to create their own academy, to create their own pilots, where Certainly some of the cost would be borne by the students, but a lot of that cost is relieved if they went and flew for Republic. It was just an interesting way to approach the world in the way Chris just talked about. Ben, we've got another question. Uh, This is from Patrick in Atlanta. Hey, Ben and Chris, love the show and the great guests you've had on as of late. I believe, though, that Ben is mistaken regarding the rules around positive bag match. It's my understanding that based on the regulations that the requirements of baggage flying with the passenger only applies to international flights and not domestic. Thus, in, in the scenarios that have been referenced in listener emails recently, as those were on domestic flights, the bags would fly with or without the customer actually being on board. Thanks for the great content and keep up the great work. Thanks a lot, Patrick. You know, I've tried to confirm your view of it, but I can't get a confirmation of that. I'm not saying you're wrong, Patrick. You might be right, but... Most domestic airlines or most airlines on domestic flights will absolutely remove the bag if the passengers, all the passengers on the PNR are not flying. So I actually think it does apply to domestic flights as well. It's, it's, you know, what it is, is it's a safety issue. Obviously, if somebody wanted to put something nefarious in their bag and they don't want to get hurt, obviously they would want to check the bag and not get on the plane. And that's the whole reason that the bags are removed. It's not that the bag might get separated from the customer. It's like, hey, if if there's anything in your bag that could hurt this plane, you're going to get hurt by it too, because we're going to make sure you're on this airplane. right? That, that's kind of the whole reason for that. So I think it does apply domestically, but I promise that by next week's show and the 100th show, we'll give a final confirmation on this. So, Ben, just to mix things up, I'm going to go to the Carnival Cruise Line mailbag and ask you this question and see if you can help. Uh, It's one that came in this past week, and the writer is referencing Carnival Mardi Gras, our new ship. Hello, I was just on the Mardi Gras cruise with my family, and I know this sounds weird, and I've tried a couple of things, but is there any way to find a person that was on your cruise, but you don't know their name? I talked to this person, but we never caught names. I must sound crazy. But since I don't know where they live, I can't seem to find any connections. If no one can help, I understand. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Someone was smitten on your cruise ship, I could. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I totally understand why Carnival or an airline or a hotel will not give that information. Obviously, if somebody wants you to know their name, they will tell you their name. And no company should or probably legally can sort of give you information, just like you can't go to a hotel clerk and say, can you tell me who's staying in this room? Or I'm coming here to see this person. Can you tell me what room they're in? They won't give you that information. And so I think you'll have to be sneakier or, or more creative in how you find out how to get a hold of this person. I think it's called Craigslist Lost Souls or something. (laughs) (laughs) Great question, though. Well, before we get to our finer wine, a reminder that Seabury Capital Group is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-plus year track record of advising key clients in aviation, aerospace and defense, and financial services and technologies. Seabury Capital Group's award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology, and solutions and an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. Ben, this finer wine is from Steve in Lenexa, Virginia. Hope I said that right. It's about Allegiant Airlines. I booked a package flight hotel deal. Allegiant never got the reservation to the hotel in Nashville. After holding for over an hour and never speaking with a person while in the hotel lobby, I had to pay the hotel at the current retail price. The hotel clerk said this just happened with someone else that never got through to customer service to get it resolved. As of this writing, I still can't get through on any phone number to try and get my money back. Starting to wonder if they even have people working or just all the computers designed so you can't resolve problems. Well, Chris, I think this is a fine. I don't think there's a wine here. If you book a package price almost like we were talking about a little earlier about sort of the outsourced airports. It's your responsibility. You sold the product, you sold the product. And so Allegiant was sort of has the responsibility to get you to where you go. And if you bought the hotel from them, that's the price that should be honored if you paid for that and they offered you that. When the hotel doesn't know, that sounds to me like a problem between the hotel and Allegiant. And Allegiant absolutely should get back to you and refund you the difference between what they charged you for the hotel and what that hotel charged you. It's unfortunate that you got put through this situation. But when you sell a package, you're responsible for supporting the package. And it sounds like something not related to you in the back end wasn't connected properly. In terms of getting a hold of them, I would keep calling, send them email. The more ways you try to contact them, the harder it is going to be for them to ignore you. And they should not ignore you on this. This is absolutely not a whine. I'm not a fan of telling people to dispute a credit card charge, but this is one that deserves that as well. They didn't deliver the service and I would let them respond to the bank rather than if they aren't able to answer you. So listeners, as we wrap up this week's show and give our shout outs, I don't want to get political, but I do want to give a shout out to all the brave men and women of the armed forces who are supporting the airlift out of Afghanistan. And to the 13 Marines who were killed last week, as we say in the Greek Orthodox Church, may their memory be eternal. 
That's great, Chris. And I'm going to pile on. And my shout out is going to go to the crews of the U.S. airlines that are operating the Civil Reserve Air Fleet flights out of Afghanistan. We talked about the craft program in last week's show when somebody asked how those planes could be used. But it is U.S. crews and U.S. airplanes that have been responsible for a lot of this airlift out of Afghanistan for U.S. people, at least. Not all, but so for the crews operating as well, my shout out goes to them. With that, everyone, stay safe and please join us next week. Thanks for listening. And we hope you all join us for our 100th show next week. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.